Go a little better on episode 141. The hypothetical I am throwing your way is one that was posed to one Steph Curry. Would you give up the two Kevin Durant championships if you had the opportunity to complete the 73 win 2015-2016 season? That's a great question, actually. I'm going to say no. It's interesting, though, if I'm answering it from Steph Curry's point of view. In this hypothetical, you are Steph. So that's interesting because Steph Curry in 2015, when he won his first MVP and they released that first Under Armour shoe, adjusted for inflation, he had more shoe sales than Michael Jordan had in 1987 at Nike. And Steph Curry was the face of Under Armour. And a combination of the flop of the Curry 2s and Kevin Durant, a Nike athlete, superseding Curry on his own team. Steph Curry gave up the chance to be one of these billionaire moguls like Michael Jordan because he liked having work-life balance and wanted to win championships. And if I had been in Steph Curry's shoes, I don't know if I would have had the the cojones to make that call. Like Steph Curry was going to take the shit from LeBron James. And maybe in fairness, maybe they needed to beat LeBron in that 2016 finals to establish Steph Curry as the next great thing in basketball. So maybe they needed that championship in order to make it happen, I would say I'm okay with how it turned out. If I'm Steph Curry, I'm okay with how this all turned out. Maybe Kevin Durant could have stayed a few more years, but I think I'm okay with how things worked out. As much as I would have loved to complete the 73-1 season if I'm Steph Curry, I think I do still stick with the three rings, at least having the third ring, not knowing what the future may hold for me, not knowing if Kevin Durant would even went there if they got that second championship. If they would have got KD in addition to winning that championship, then that completely turns the NBA world on its head, then we're talking about potentially a four-peat. But if you think about it from Steph's point of view, not only winning that 73-win season would have also been historic from the record books perspective, but it also been back-to-back championships and creating somewhat of a Warriors dynasty in that respect. But Steph ultimately answered this question too, and he said that he would stick with the three rings. I think that's the right way to go. But anyway, Slump Busters, drop a go in the comments. Would you rather complete the 2015-2016 season if you were Steph Curry with the Golden State Warriors, or would you keep the two Kevin Durant rings in its place? I'd like to know that. Five-star review, all that good stuff. It's time for your random sports fact of the week. Wow, did you know that? Now live on the Slump Buster Podcast, random sports fact of the week. Last week, baseball headlines made me have to table this fact. The Lakers will have to hire their seventh coach since Phil Jackson stepped away in 2011. The Los Angeles Lakers decided to move on from Frank Vogel as the NBA regular season came to a close. Vogel seemed like a dead man walking all season anyway in Los Angeles, but now the Lakers look for yet another potential victim. Since Jackson left, the franchise in Los Angeles has been dreadful. One NBA title and a season that will never be replicated stands as the lone bright spot in a mountain of horrible basketball. The Lakers in the last 10 seasons have a 419 winning percentage, which is 25th in the NBA. This is behind the 76ers, Pelicans, and Suns, who made every effort to tank over that time period. They've missed the playoffs in six seasons over that stretch, they missed expanded playoffs this season, and they have an aging roster with little to no recourse. Fact is, the Lakers have been bad. This season showed they are bad, and they will continue to be bad heading into next season without bigger picture changes, not limited to the head coach. The Slump Buster Podcast. The Slump Buster Podcast. The first quarter starts now.
We are a week into the NBA playoffs with most series three games in. We made our picks last week and some are still holding strong while others are dead on arrival. Kyle and I have devised our eight takeaways from the playoffs to this point. Here's my takeaways from each series in the West. Turn on the Brunson burner. Luka Les Mavs still won in his absence. We questioned the depth behind Luka and rightfully so, but Jalen Brunson has been a contributor all season. He dropped 41 points to give the Mavs a game two victory. Luka is still questionable for game three and he continues continues to miss games. I still think Utah's better, but if sets this one up to be a tight series down the stretch, if he comes back later on game six or game seven, that's where I stand with the Mavericks versus Jazz series. Pool party by the Bay. Jordan Poole, a guy who had to work up from the G League is turning into the next Splash Brother before our eyes. 59 combined points in the first two games have jettisoned the Warriors to a 2-0 advantage over the Denver Nuggets. This is already looking like quick work for Golden State, but I'll keep an eye out for Jokic to at least give Denver a game at home. Are the Pelicans flying too close to the Suns? We thought the Suns were untouchable coming out of the Western Conference this season, but Phoenix just dropped the game to the eight-seeded New Orleans Pelicans. What makes this series more dubious is the hamstring injury to Devin Booker. Devin Booker has already been ruled out for game three and four. In addition, he has been diagnosed with a grade one hamstring strain that could keep him out two to three weeks. Valanciunas, Ingram did great work cleaning up the glass, and 23 points from veteran CJ McCollum propelled the Pelicans to a victory in game two. How this affects the rest of the series, we shall see, but it's no longer a cakewalk like Phoenix originally imagined. Grizz, next Jan and the young pup Timberwolves signal bright future. This series may be one of the best in the first round. Anthony Edwards has been amazing. John Morant has dazzled and NBA fans are seeing the rise of two non-traditional powers in Memphis and Minnesota. I'll stick with my pick of Memphis winning, but the Timberwolves stealing home court advantage says this will be a great series the rest of the way. Kyle, what do you think about my Western Conference takeaways? I think you did a great job with taking away things from the Western Conference. And while I, I heard a great quote on the Phoenix series real quick with that, which is while Phoenix can still beat New Orleans without Devin Booker, it makes sense why you're asking that question. Can they beat New Orleans without Devin Booker? I I know that for Devin Booker, he's got top doctors. And if he's at 70% health, we'll probably go ahead and play. This is more of like a four to six week injury that he's going to probably try and come back from in about two weeks. And that's kind of concerning for Phoenix just because they really, really need Devin Booker to make that whole machine work. Otherwise... Well, I guess they play Utah in the next round, but whatever. Anyways, uh, speaking of Utah, Utah, why are you like this? Like, why are you like this every single time? They're playing game three tonight, so maybe that'll change by the time we come around to this series again. But outside of Donovan Mitchell, it's just 10 Bogdanoviches in this series. Every team is just Bogdanoviches everywhere. And also Donovan Mitchell, who should be good enough to win that series. Even when Jalen Brunson scores 40 points in a game two, that should just cancel out what Donovan Mitchell does. It doesn't have to be 40 points, but Donovan Mitchell can give you 30. 35 way more efficiently than Brunson can give you 40 because he took like 29 shots to make it happen. Dallas had no business winning that basketball game. They had no business winning against the Utah Jazz. And Utah's just going to let them hang around in the series long enough for Luka Doncic to come back and put a dagger in their hearts because at this point, 70% of Luka Doncic might be good enough to beat Utah. Warriors are going to kick ass. Memphis is going to kick ass. But shout out to the Timber Pups. I'm falling in love with you all over over again, even though you have no chance of winning this series. I said it would get to 3-1 originally. Whatever happens after that is 
anyone's guess. I'm going to stick to it just because it doesn't matter how they win the one game. As long as they win the one game, they win it in game one or they win it in game four. It's all kind of the same. I'm going to say it's going to get to three, one. And after that, you know, Minnesota could steal a game five, game six at home, game seven, anything can happen, but I'm going to say it's still going to get to three, one there. Uh, and the Warriors are just really good. Yeah. The Warriors, the development of Jordan pool, and now he's inserted into this rotation that's feeling very new age we're seeing the rise of a lot of young stars which i guess happens every postseason but nice to see that next evolution of these teams and i i love the warriors approach to sustainability to get a guy like jordan pool develop him work him in your system we talked about guys like kaminga how far can kaminga develop they put a lot of emphasis on building up guys we talked about what's going on in los angeles with the lakers now and just tearing down bringing in a bunch of 30 plus year old veterans and and that's the opposite of what the warriors are doing they're bringing something that's going to keep them competing for multiple years to come. Going back to the Utah Mavericks series, yes, it's a real disappointment if you're Utah. You even dropped a game while Luka is out. That's your opportunity to shine. That's your opportunity to just win the first three games of the series, and you can't even do that. Uh, yes, technically, technically, you stole back home court advantage, and that's a win in itself, but it feels like a hollow shell of what you could have done. You have basically put the series on ice. So by the time even Luka does come back, this series is already over he's coming back for a lost cause effort maybe he puts up a fantastic sat line just in a returning effort but it's all for naught and that's where utah really missed the mark till the very end grizzlies timberwolves is going to be a fight i think now you have the timberwolves starting to believe in themselves and another team that managed to still home court advantage you know that old saying about the series doesn't really start until you win on the other team's court well they've already done that so they've already established they can do that and anthony edwards is dazzling to this point he's just as much of an impact player as a guy like Jaw Morant. Jaw obviously being having with the game two performance and then Anthony Edwards starting off the series in game one, you're seeing those two battle it out. And if you could just get anything out of Cat, Minnesota at the top has more talent than the Memphis Grizzlies. Memphis is the deeper team and we saw that in Jaw's absence. And that's what's ultimately going to be the difference and I think going to help them win the series. But I think the high-end talent for the Timberwolves is something that I think is just going to keep this being a fight. And yeah, now I'm looking at this New Orleans series. Now I'm looking at what's going on with Phoenix. If you don't have Devin Booker, Phoenix has been able to win throughout this year without Devin Booker in their lineup. They've had moments in which Devin Booker's been out of the lineup. They've had moments in which CP3's been out of the lineup. And the fact that they were in the playoffs last year, you have a lot of guys who have that experience. When you look at the Pelicans, their guys don't have that same level of expertise at this level. Uh, Aside from CJ McCollum, no one's really been there to really win a series like this, win a series where they're the severe underdog. Now, now you got them believing in themselves. So it might just be like a six game series when it didn't need to be. We we went into this thinking that could be a sweep. It, It could turn into a six game series. And now you're thinking I have a chance to rest guys. Now it's not looking like that. Now you're also worried about the next series too, because am I getting Devin Booker at 60%, 70%? Like we're talking about with Luca, hamstrings are such a horrible injury to try and navigate through because you could re-injure them in a snap. So uh, there are four points I would like to bring up that you mentioned here. One, anytime you mention Jonathan Kaminga, I'm obligated to mention the greatest nickname in the NBA, which is Cumbucket. Shout out Cumbucket. Two, I forgot to mention Jokic's best teammate is Will Barton. As good as Jokic may be, which is MVP of the league against the Warriors, Will Barton is not going to do it. Utah should win that series in five games if you take Luka off the Mavericks. Maybe that's the one game that they get and then Utah wins on their home floor. I don't trust you. 
Utah to not F this up royally. And four, if you take away Phoenix from the top of the Western Conference, it's a crapshoot in the West. Like you could pick any of those five teams at the top and say they could win the Western Conference and none of them will be deserving compared to like the fact that either Brooklyn or Boston has to lose in the first round of the East. So yeah, Western Conference is going to be crazy. I need Luca to get back healthy so he can make a magical run to the finals at 23 years old and kick off the Luca generation. Even though the Luca generation already exists, it's just I talked earlier this week on Take It Easy about how if Luca stays healthy last year, they beat the Clippers in the first round. They would have gotten Utah in the second round. They would have won that series. They would have gotten to the conference finals against Phoenix. Probably lose. It at least could have been like, hey, he pulls off an upset. He makes the finals at 22, like Kevin Durant did by upsetting the Spurs in 2012, or LeBron by upsetting the Pistons in 2007. And then he got hurt and they lost in the first round. This year, they would have beat Utah easily. They would have gotten to have a second consecutive matchup with the Suns. And that would have been a budding rivalry in the West is Luka versus Devin Booker. You know, you get to develop that. Luka's injuries have just derailed us from that storyline that I think would have been cool. So clearly he's not healthy enough to play these games. He's not healthy enough to play for like the next two weeks. If he does play, it'll be at like 70% of Luka, which is a disservice to us. It just sucks because Luka is his generation's greatest player. Like he's putting up numbers as good as LeBron and Kevin Durant did at 21 and 22 years old. He just has gotten hurt in the playoffs and that sucks because like years from now, he's going to be single-handedly close to getting teams to the finals. He's already 23 and single-handedly good enough to carry a shit Mavericks team to 50 wins. Luca, get healthy because if Devin Booker's going to be out, you need to make this finals run. If it's Ja Morant, that's fun too. If it's the Warriors, we can all get excited about that story because the Warriors are like the most unique, great dynasty in any sport over the past 20 years. So we have uh, some headlines now from the Eastern Conference playoffs so far as we are two to three games into most of these series already. Uh, Similar to how Juju did it in the West, here's what we've got in the East. Ice Trey can't beat the Heat. I know it's a little cliche. It was just too perfect because Trey Young had his worst game as a professional in game one against the Miami Heat. And the Miami Heat were feeling so arrogant that they used their Duncan Robinson game in a blowout against Atlanta just to send a statement. And in game two, it was Jimmy Butler putting up 40 five for the Miami Heat. They are going to win this series. We knew the whole way they were going to win this series. The way they've won it has been incredibly fun and incredibly fascinating. Miami, one of the three best teams in the East? Question mark, question mark. I guess we'll find out, won't we? Joel Embiid is letting the Toronto Raptors get their giraffe kicked because... The Toronto Raptors, who people tried to convince me were good at basketball, have uh, been dismantled and destroyed in two games by the Philadelphia 76ers. In game three, they held the lead the entire game until the final 0.8 seconds of the entire basketball game when Joel Embiid, to quote Drake in a fantastic fashion, turned that 0-2 into that 0-3 and sent the Toronto Raptors packing. I guess they have to play one more in Toronto anyways, but at 3-0, the series is over. People, The Toronto greatly overachieved this season. 48 wins is much to be proud of, and yet a team led by Van Fleet was never going to be able to beat Joel Embiid and James Harden. KD can't seem to find the Nets. 
Uh, this is giving me bullets sweating all the way up and down my face at this point because now the Boston Celtics have won two games against the Brooklyn Nets. They, they've done the thing that I said I didn't think they could do. They've made Kevin Durant an inefficient scorer, and that's pretty remarkable because Kevin Durant never looks like an inefficient scorer, not since like 2015 or I guess 2016 when he played the Golden State Warriors defense has he looked so inefficient as a scorer, and yet here are the Boston Celtics doing damage to Durant and the Brooklyn offense. Durant went four for 17 in game two, shot 36% in game one. It is a, an unremarkable series for Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets. And that's got to be a little bit concerning. And also, I know I am putting a lot on, on the line with Brooklyn. I've been saying all year, don't believe it, don't believe it, don't believe it. Brooklyn's great. Brooklyn's great. Nets and six or Nets and seven or whatever I said. I'm still not wavering because you don't change your pick mid-series because then you only get to be wrong twice. And I'm not going to detract from how awesome that game one was between Brooklyn and Boston. That was like pinnacle of playoff basketball fun. It was the most fun I've had watching basketball since Giannis's 50-point triple-double in game six of the NBA Finals last year. We have our final headline, my personal favorite. Middleton missing for Milwaukee may mean mayhem. And this is a difficult situation that Milwaukee finds themselves in because losing Chris Middleton sucks. Chris Middleton is their closer though. And Giannis has said for years, and it's a, it's a good level of perspective in that way. I don't want to over credit Giannis for this, but he said Middleton is the fourth quarter guy. Like I can get us there one through three, three and a half Middleton's our closer. And he trusts him with every shot in every big game. That's a big loss for Milwaukee as they go forward in the playoffs. This might be a longer injury for Chris Middleton. This could lead to doom for Milwaukee as they get further into the playoffs. Now they'll be able to beat Chicago. They lost Middleton and still almost beat Chicago in game two. That's just a testament to the fact that Zach Levine is too streaky of a scorer to be able to win three out of five games against the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, but Middleton's injury is going to be similar to the Sun series, a defining topic as we go forward. Because now the two teams that we thought were, or I said for like weeks are the two best in the NBA and still think are the two best in the NBA, just lost major pieces on both sides of the ball. Well, you know, we can only start with the Celtics versus the Nets. I am not going to stand here and gloat. I'm not going to get too overconfident. But why do you think the Celtics have done extremely well is the fact that they can test literally everything. There is not a single basket that Katie has gone up for in the series that there hasn't been at least one to two Boston defenders surrounding him, like almost like sharks with blood in the water. That's kind of how the Celtics have been. And as the series goes on, you kind of wonder how fatigued is Kevin Durant going to get as this has just not been an easy series for him. The Celtics have literally been pushing him around. Every time he tries to drive, there's someone in his face. And you have guys like Peyton Pritchard and Grant Williams who stepped up off the bench and this is why I thought the Celtics were going to be a difficult matchup for the Nets going in is because this defense is not a smoke in Mirzak. it's legitimate they have helped teams to a point averages only similar to the 2008 Detroit Pistons the 2008 Boston Celtics and many have looked at this defense and compared it to the 2004 Detroit Pistons defense but it doesn't stop there because they still have good offensive scoring options and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And the fact that Jason Tatum had an awful game two and the Celtics still were able to win tells me a lot right there. The fact that one of their stars had a bad game and they were still able to win that game 
despite being down 17 points at one point, has to be very discouraging for the Brooklyn Nets, has to be discouraging for Kyrie Irving, Steve Nash, Kevin Durant, as they try and find out what's the secret formula, because the Celtics defense isn't going to change. They're going to still be good at switching on to the right guys. Marcus Smart may have a dip in his ability to contain Kyrie Irving. We saw Kyrie had an excellent game one. And Kevin Durant still probably has one game in the series where he's going to put up 40 points. But the fact that the Celtics have made a decision, we're only going to let one of your guys go off. We're not going to let both of your guys go off. I think it's something that we're going to see throughout the series. And as we look at it the rest of the way, do I think the Nets have the ability to win four of the next five? No, I, I think that that ship has sailed. So I'm going to say stick with my pick. I had the Celtics in seven. I don't think the Nets have four games out of this next five because throughout the season, they only had one stretch of winning four consecutive games in the entire regular season of 2022. The other series, you talk about Middleton going down. This has huge ramifications for the rest of the playoffs, obviously. Whether it's the Celtics or the Nets, looking like it's going to be the Celtics. Middleton not being there means that all the pressure goes to Giannis Antetokounmpo. And Giannis obviously can take over games, but you do still need an outside shooting presence. Otherwise, the Celtics could still implement the same game plan that they're implementing against Kevin Durant right now. They can build a wall. They have the personnel, they have the length, they have the uh, size to be able to contain a guy like Giannis if he's the primary or only scoring threat. Obviously, of course, you're going to have Holiday in there who's going to chip in, but Chris Middleton is, is important for the Bucks' sustained success going into that next series. And even beyond that, let's say the Bucs have to go against the 76ers, who are another team that has great size and certainly has one of the more dominant big men in the league in Joel Embiid. They can't have that outside perimeter presence in Chris Milton missing from their lineup. Uh, I think they're still obviously more than good enough to put away the Bulls. The Bulls put up their best performance yet. DeMar DeRozan said, we're at least going to get one put up 40 points. Uh, Zach Levine, like you said, putting in 20, but they are streaky performers. I do think they had the right motivations going into that game, but it is interesting now that they head into Chicago. They have the home court advantage. And we'll see how Chicago is for a big time playoff atmosphere. This is the first time Chicago's really had that in a few years. So I'm going to be excited to see that home environment for the Chicago Bulls as they welcome the Milwaukee Bucks. As far as the Miami Heat, they're making quick work of the Atlanta Hawks. Trey Young just being completely off the mark. In that second game, there was an opportunity for the Hawks to still one in Miami in that second game. But as the fourth quarter progressed, they just lost steam. And that's where, like you mentioned, you start seeing the depth of the Miami Heats just start coming more in play. The Hawks just don't have the personnel to keep up with them. I thought it was going to be a closer series. I think you could see the Hawks maybe still one of these next two, but it's ultimately looking like a gentleman's sweep. And then in the final series, obviously, hey, I'll admit, I, I was wrong. I was hoping for more of the Toronto Raptors. I had them winning in six. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Can't even mathematically happen now. And now I thought it was going to happen. Have to be the first time in NBA history, and I'm not going to put any money down on that. Obviously, their best chance to win was last night in that overtime game, and the 76ers put a stop to it quick. And I thought going in, like a lot of people thought, the Toronto Raptors were just a more fundamentally sound basketball team. In game two, you just did not see it whatsoever. You saw a lot of air balls. You saw a lot of bad passes. Uh, you saw a lot of bad shots, like bad shot selection from the Toronto Raptors, literally shooting off their back foot, left-handed throws, desperation heaves. And if you're going to win and you're going to compete against a team that's better than you, then at least do the right things when you have the ball in your hands. You can't just giving up lost possessions like they were. And that's been a big part of the series. I think in game three, to their credit, they corrected a lot of that, but they were still unrewarded for their efforts. 
And I just don't see an out for them. Obviously, there's mathematically a 0.0001% based on all of NBA history. Hell, we have- It's over. Yes, over. Over. Good night, Toronto. It's like hand sanitizer at this point. And even that, uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I do like the pun. I do like the giraffe kick pun. It was giraffe kicked. Yes, they got their giraffe kicked in this series. Um, but yeah, Toronto, again, Toronto's a good team. I disrespected them this season, and I admit I was wrong. I'm not wrong enough where they're going to win a playoff series. Let's not go crazy here, especially against Joel Embiid and James Harden and Tyrese Maxey, who are all possibly better than Van Fleet. Sorry, Van Fleet. But yeah, there, there was no way they were going to win that series. I'm really excited to see how this series goes on because Brooklyn had game one. They had game one against Boston and they let it go away. So will this year, they're already like evenly matched. Will they get another chance to get one of those games back? Is there going to be one other than the two that I think they're going to win just because they dominate Boston? I just think part of the problem is we haven't even seen the best Boston game. We've seen some subpar performances from Boston in the respect of the team that has been playing for the last month, month and a half. And they were able to survive that with still a 2-0 series advantage. I think that's the thing that's a a benefit for Boston, right? I said after game one that this is sustainable. What Boston's done is not like, wow, this is incredible how they did that. Like, uh, was it DeRozan had like 41 in the game two? Like, you're not going to get that from DeRozan every night. In fact, DeRozan's probably going to give you like a three for 18 game at some point here because he's going to get guarded by Drew Holiday. Well, where's the hyper-efficient Jason Tatum game? Yes, Jalen Brown came on strong in game two, but he was quiet for the first half. It really took that fourth quarter for him to really get things going. And then you're seeing the importance of the role players. I mentioned the spark plug that Peyton Pritchard and Grant Williams provided for them off the bench in game two. You're, you're seeing that level of play come from those, those guys. So the exterior pieces are starting to keep them going. Whereas the Celtics literally survived Bruce Brown's best game. They survived Goran Dragic's best game. And those punches weren't good enough. If the next best thing the Nets can do is to, like I said, have KD and Kyrie both go off in the same game, but having them do it in the same game four times, is just not a sustainable model based off what they've done the entire season. What is interesting about that is game one, Boston won it. Boston won game one. Game two, Brooklyn just lost it. Brooklyn played, Boston didn't play remarkably well in game two. It's just Brooklyn lost the game themselves. There will come a time, if you play enough basketball games, I'm not saying it'll happen in this series. If you play five, six, seven basketball games in a row, eventually the Celtics are going to have one to two games where they lose the game. Like they have a Jason Tatum has a bad night. Jalen Brown has a bad night and Grant Williams doesn't have 17 points. Like that's going to happen eventually. If you play enough basketball games, I think the beauty for the Boston Celtics there is that they've snuck the two victories out the second one. Yeah. They, they won the game rather handily, but again, Brooklyn played exorbitantly bad basketball. Like Brooklyn lost that game in game two game one. They stole a victory right out of Brooklyn's hand. Like the things that I was banking on have kind of come true for Brooklyn, except for Kevin Durant just isn't playing great basketball. And that's the one thing that was a constant is like Kevin Durant plays great basketball. Brooklyn's up 2-0 in the series against Boston. And that's the one strange thing that hasn't happened. Boston's just made an executive decision that we're not going to let this guy beat us. And the fact that they have him literally contested, not just two guys, but sometimes even three guys on the same basket is them saying we're selling out to stop Kevin Durant and other guys have to beat us. 
And in game two early on, yes, that was Bruce Brown. And Bruce Brown was killing them early on. Goran Dragic was killing them early on. But we've questioned the Nets bench this entire season. Can those guys step up if this continues? Kevin Durant mentioned in his press conference that it's on me now to solve this defense. But the Boston Celtics defense, a lot of people have been asking themselves since January, how do I solve this defense? And the simple matter is that they just do everything right. Like they're not doing anything outside the norm. They're just switching on guys. They're just putting their arms up. They're getting two guys to at least put their arms up to both when you're in front of you, when you're shooting and to the side of you that they're messing with guys uh, eye perception and the fact that they're the refs are allowing this to be a more physical series has also added to the action as well i'm not saying that any team's doing anything particularly dirty or anything but the fact that you have two guys mobbed up on one guy on each basket tempo or when they're driving into the lane is a more physical brand of basketball than we're typically used to. In the intro that I had for this series, I specifically mentioned this is the first time Kevin Durant has looked like that since 2016 against the Warriors when he was on OKC. The reason I mentioned that specifically is because that was the last time Kevin Durant faced a top three defense in a playoff series, which I think Boston at the end of the year finished second in defensive rating, but they were like at the top for a good portion of the season. And the series that they played with Golden State, it was like, okay, they played the Pelicans one time, they played the Jazz. The, the Spurs 2017 series, Kawhi Leonard got hurt in game one. And that was like the series was over at that point. Kevin Durant averaged 37. They played the Cavs in the finals. Kevin Durant averaged 37 in that series. 2018, they played the Rockets, almost lost to the Rockets because the Rockets were the number one offense in the NBA. They just didn't have the defensive wherewithal to withstand Kevin Durant. And then they got to the finals. Cavs, not a great defense. I mean, fine defensive team, not a great defensive team, though. Beat the Cavs. 2019, he was hurt the entire playoff until game five against Toronto. People forget Kevin Durant didn't play for the Warriors that year in the playoffs before he tore his Achilles, missed the whole season in 2020. 2021, they played Milwaukee, which was a top six defense, but not quite a top three defense in the second round. And they almost single-handedly beat the, he almost single-handedly beat Milwaukee in that series. And now he's playing a top three defense in Boston, which is interesting test because we always say like Kevin Durant can be double teamed and he'll still hit shots over you because no one can contest it. And yet I saw Jalen Brown block a Kevin Durant shot in game yeah. one. And it and, was shocking. And now it's almost like he's seeing ghosts similar to Sam Darnold against the Patriots. It's almost like mm-hmm. he's seeing ghost defenders because late in the fourth quarter, he did have some open opportunities, probably the best shots he's seen all series. And he just flat out missed them. They were off the mark. He missed two free throws on the same possession, on the same trip to the line. And that is just something that's so out of character, outside of his basketball character for Kevin Durant, that you could definitely tell he's rattled in this series. And now you're changing the environment. You're going back to Brooklyn. So you now have the home crowd on your side. You don't have the crazy Boston fans and Kyrie and all this drama surrounding you. Will that be the reprieve that he needs to relax and get back into his own headspace? Maybe, but then you have the questions of how many Boston fans are going to be in that Brooklyn Nets attendance because the Brooklyn Nets are not a traditional fan base and not a one with a storied history themselves. This is this is difficult because as much as Boston may want to take credit for this one, I'm not sure how much the seeing ghosts thing is valid there more than it's just he missed shots. Kevin Durant misses shots. I just can't prove that it's true beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the thing that I point to and say why Brooklyn's still in the series is like, oh, Kevin Durant missed shots. Well, if you correct that one thing, they're up 2-0 in the series. And historically, I bet on Kevin Durant making those shots in the games that come. But who knows? Maybe he doesn't 
maybe they flame out in five games and this goes down as one of the great disappointments in, in NBA history because it wasn't even the thing that everyone was crapping on Brooklyn for earlier this season. They were crapping on them for, they don't play defense. They don't have a third scorer. They don't have a bench. It would be the one thing that gave people pause is Kevin Durant was the thing that fell apart at the end. That would just be kind of shocking if that's how it goes out, because it's not the reason everyone thought Brooklyn would flame out spectacularly in the first round. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. Chris LeBron is joining us. Chris, the CEO of the Off the Ball Podcast Network, Off the Ball Podcast. He is the host of. What other projects are you working on, Chris? I know you're a busy man these days. Yeah, you know, uh, just getting back into think uh, in in the gist of things. You know, took a little time off of the podcast because you know work kids those things get, get in the way and stuff but uh finally getting back in the groove obviously nba playoffs nba draft you know something i love a lot so uh get just getting back in the groove and and uh, i'm excited to be on the show and bringing him on perfect time because obviously there's no bias here from chris i mean no julius randall to talk about in these playoffs so chris <laughs> oh, is the perfect person don't even to bring say on that. in these times you can't even say that to me man <laughs> like it's just it brings back it brings bad memories and even though it just happened but it's just it's bad year for for, for my Knicks, you know uh, but it's i'm used to it so i don't really get too worked up about it like a lot of Knicks fans do because i'm like oh i low-key expected it I low-key expected it. I told people, they're like, no, no, we're going to be top four. We're going to be make a run. I was like, eh, it could. I hope, but it could. Eh. You know, Tia, the team's got better, too. <laughs> like, it could go bad. Like, and I'd said that, and people were like, no, no, you're, you're crazy. And look what happened. So It's okay, Chris. It's okay, because there is still basketball to be played in the state of New York, because the Brooklyn Nets are going to be welcoming <laughs> the Boston Celtics on Saturday, down 0-2, certainly a lot of pundits, a lot of experts didn't expect the series to go this way. A lot of people still expected the Brooklyn Nets to at least still won in Boston. Didn't happen. I think one of the biggest stories about that is just the defense has been played on Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and how the Celtics have been able to work those guys. Do you think it is possible for the Nets still to pull this one off, or do you think they're dead in the water right now? No, they, they, they're still in it. Just think about game one, literally. It was a spin move and a layup you know, with point <laughs> some seconds left that ended that for them. So like, they still have a chance. I mean, they can't have what happened in the fourth quarter yesterday. Like that just can't, like they scored at one point, it, they had four points with like a couple minutes left in the game. Like, and that's with KD Kyrie, you know, I, I just can't see that happening at home. You know, I think they'll build off the energy and all that, but um, they're, they're in it. You know, it's not like they're getting blown out. If that was the case, I would feel different. But I feel like getting back home, they'll they'll be more comfortable and all that, and, and they'll get back in this. And, you know, obviously they're going to have to win game three, but, you know, uh, it, it's they're still in this. So one of the things that's interesting about the Milwaukee Bucks and Chicago Bulls series is that now Middleton is out for an extended period of time, and they yeah. should be able to win that series and, you know, Chicago is is an okay team at this point, but how do you feel about the situation that the Bucks find themselves in right now? That's a huge injury. And then they lost Porters too, you know, with with the eye injury too. So like that that was huge. But losing Middleton is obviously, you know, they don't have a lot of shot creators on that team. I mean, he he's probably the best shot creator on that team. And you lose him, now the focus is gonna come on Giannis having to do a lot of stuff and not with a lot of help either. Like their bench last game had like, I think six points. Connington was like one of seven, you know, Allen was didn't, didn't shoot the ball well. And obviously Porter's leaving in the first quarter. That doesn't help. So they're going to need someone to step. Drew's going to have to step up a little bit more, you know, offensively. 
you know, he's been kind of, he's been all right, but uh, he's going to have to step up and be more of that creator, but it's going to come on Giannis. And uh, this Bulls team has kind of been weird this whole year because early in the season, I mean, the Rosen was an MVP candidate. This team was looking good. Then they hit, hit with the COVID bug and injuries. So, and it, maybe they're finally figuring stuff out, you know, because that Caruso coming back and paying good defense has really helped them. And, and you know, they're going to need Levine to step up too. He, he wants to get paid this offseason. He's going to have to show, get to that next level because uh, he's been kind of okay, but he needs to be better than okay for them to come out of this series. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens the rest of the way and how long Middleton's going to be out. You know, because that that dictates everything, you know, and, and something we saw last playoffs with all the injuries. Now we're seeing it this playoff so far with a lot of big names getting hurt. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, going forward. I got to admit I'm wrong when I'm wrong, because on the other side of the Eastern Conference bracket, I had Toronto pulling off upset against the Philadelphia 76ers. Clearly, that is not going to happen. That is a zero point zero 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 zero. 1% chance of happening. Hey, and hey, even hey, then, that's Yankees probably fan. still too much. I'm a Yankees yeah, fan. Yeah, I know. I understand. You know that hurts say too well. Never. But I know the, it was baseball, but in the NBA, never say never. In the <laughs> NBA, highly never. unlikely, especially if the Toronto Raptors continue to play the brand of basketball that they have through the first three yeah. games. I thought with the Mathis Steibel getting him ruled out into the Toronto games, that that would have been the difference maker. Clearly, it wasn't. So now we're in this thing where the 76ers are seemingly one of the few teams in the Eastern Conference that could really coast, coast the entire way as the Raptors haven't really challenged them at all. Um, what does this set up for Joel and James Harden as they progress in the East? Yeah, Joel's taking advantage of no size from Toronto. Like they got Boucher, but it, it's just a mismatch and he's clearly taken advantage of that. But the pressure was is on James Harden, right? He's that one superstar in the league, you know, has that you know, no rings. And that's the only thing left on his resume is not having a ring. And then, you know, how everything ended with the Rockets didn't end well, you know, kind of eating his way out of, out of Houston. And then suddenly, you know, he was on whatever diet he was on. I wanted that diet because the way the last time he was in Houston and then he got to Brooklyn, I mean, that's, Whatever diet he's on, man, I need to find out what that is because that's that's a great diet to have. I think it's he all wants, liquids. Yeah, yeah. He, he must have just like 40 pounds in like an hour, I felt like. You know, he, he was cutting <laughs> weight. But and then how it ended in Brooklyn, right? Same way, like, I, you know, just, just half-assing it. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of pressure for James. He's definitely not the same player. You could tell he just doesn't have that explosion. Like, not that he was a super explosive player, but like just getting to the basket is something he was very, you know, very good at and he's just not there yet but you know this is the perfect series to kind of just get your you know your legs going and because you know they clearly are the better team even though toronto five, fifth seed they had a great season just overmatch right now and they had to win yesterday to in order to make this a series and like you said julian it's over <laughs> it's over for them but, uh, speaking but of valiant series run, valiant run valiant run both of them they had a great Speaking season. of series that feel like they're over, let's let's go to Hawks and Heat real quick because we kind of knew Miami was going to win that series. But uh, Jimmy Butler, forty five points was pretty cool. They got the the Duncan Robinson game in Game One, but also Trey Young played terrible. Uh, game Three is going to be on Friday. How you feeling about Miami and Atlanta? Uh, it, it it might be over. It it, just, it might be over. Um, Capella injury that's huge. Obviously, you know losing him and when they played. Uh, Cleveland to play in it's, it's too much for for Trey Young I mean like I said you never say never because Trey is you know you saw him in the last postseason had a great run but Miami's just if Jimmy Butler's dropping 40 and you got Tyler Hero doing his thing and, and Duncan's hitting threes 
and Kyle's doing his thing, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for Atlanta, and they've dealt with a lot of injuries. John Collins is clearly not 100%. They, they, they need someone else to step up. You know, uh, Bogey has moments where he looks lethal. Then he has moments where you're like, he's, he's one of 12, <laughs> you know, one of eight from three. So they're going to need Bogey to step up, um, see what happens with John Collins. If he, if he's anything, get anything from him, Horton needs to step up. But just from what it looks like, it, it looks like the heat show win this fairly easy in four or five games. Like and one, anytime you mentioned Trey Young, you have to mention Luca and Luca obviously has missed the start of this Mavs jazz series and shame on Utah for not taking advantage because they should have won the first two games. That's what Kyle and I have both agreed on, that this should have been a huge opportunity for Utah to win their first round series, move on, and kind of put the Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert rift on pause for a little bit. But here we are now, the series is split. Luka is questionable for game three. There's a possibility he could come back in game four if things fall through. Do you think Utah really has already blown it and could potentially be set up for more playoff disappointment? If they lose tonight, yeah, they're at home. Like I said, Luca's not playing. There's no Tim Hardaway, I believe. Dallas should not have a chance to win. Like just Utah, just based off just what they have on the court, they should win this game and win it fairly easy. Like they should dominate this game, but it's Utah, right? Like you said, they should be up too well easily. Like they're the better team right now with no Luca, but we just don't know what team we're going to get. We, is Donovan Mitchell just going to start chucking up shots? Cause he's kind of, yeah, the, you know, sometimes you see this, oh, he got 35 points, but it's off like, you know, 28 plus shots. And, and it's not, he hasn't been crazy efficient, right? And, and Jordan Clarkson's can be all over the place and all that. So if they lose tonight, then it's like, okay, what the heck is going on there? Cause it, it, it's like, you're playing an under Jalen. It's literally Jalen Brunson and, you know, Maxi Kleber, like Maxi Kleber went off like Maxi, you let if you let Maxi Kleber went off, go off that I'm sorry. Like you don't deserve to be in the playoffs. You deserve to be contracted. You should, you know, move the team to, to vape. Like it just, you can't <laughs> allow that in the playoffs. Like you, you should, this should have been a easy series. Lucas out. We, we, we should win this easily. Take advantage. He ain't playing because that injury is way worse than they're, they're leading us on to. Like, he should not be playing because you're risking way more. He is invaluable value. That is a top five player. And you do not, hey, it may not be worth Listen, I know playoffs, you want to try to, you know, you got a good team. It's not worth it. It is not worth it, you know, with that cap. Those things linger. You know, it may feel good one day and boom, you tear your Achilles. So, you know, like, uh, you know who's interested in having some Maxi Kleber or Dorian Finney-Smith at this point. It, it would be our buddy Jokic because Jokic's best teammate right now is Will Barton, and he is getting bounced out of that series against the Warriors. By the time people are listening to this, they might be down 3-0 at this point because the game is tonight and we're recording in the afternoon on Thursday. So doesn't look like the Nuggets had much of a chance, which we kind of thought, but the storyline's kind of been how fun the Warriors have been over the first two games of the season series man i mean jordan Poole's ascension is like we saw it in the regular season obviously but now he's he's kind of taking that next level in the playoffs and, and kind of becoming you know the star and now they i mean they have so many guys that could get you a bucket how do you stop that 
you got pool you got steph, steph curry's come off the bench he's like yeah i'm gonna come off the bench you know i gotta handle this you know we'll take the series off and then you know when we get to the next series you know we'll get back to like they got so many guys clay it, it's just too much for denver right now and they just look so perplexed and then like pick and rolls with Jokic on top like it, it just they're jordan pool is just blowing past yoke it's it just too much for for denver and with the injuries they've had obviously jamal murray being out and michael porter it's just too much it's too much i mean the golden state warriors can kill you in so many ways the way they move off picks and all that like it's you just you can't do nothing like even if you try you play your best defense it's just too much they got too many guys who can get you a bucket too many shot creators too many guys who can hit perimeter shots it's just too much for them and i think i actually think they may sneak game three but i think the warriors gonna get this in five now, Jordan Poole's been on Ascension, but we literally have a series of purely ascending stars when I look at the Timberwolves and I look at the Grizzlies. I look at all the great young talent there. And I love Memphis, but I didn't look at Memphis and think that they were already made men. I didn't think that they were just going to go into the series and coast by the Minnesota Timberwolves, especially when you look at the high-end talent of the Timberwolves. You look at D'Lo, you look at Anthony Edwards, you look at, um, obviously, Carl Anthony Towns. All three guys are at the top of their game, really talented young guys. And then you look at Memphis and Jared Jackson and Dylan Brooks and John Morant are all fine pieces, but specifically Ja, of course, who's a top 10 guy or at least leaning it towards being a top 10 guy. It's an interesting dynamic that you have set up for the rest of the way. Now that they're split, um, Minnesota has the home court advantage. How do you see the rest of this series playing out? And this series, it's so hard because there's a part of me that's like Memphis should you know, the way they played all year, especially without Ja and missing Dylan Brooks for some times, like they, they, they destroyed teams by 20 with their best players and them missing a lot of guys. So it's, but this Minnesota team just got a bunch of dogs and they want this. And you see an Anthony Edwards leveling up and Carl Anthony Towns, you know, wanting to prove that he's one of the best bigs, one of the, you know, cause he hasn't been to playoffs, So he doesn't get talked about in that with those other bigs like Embiid and Joker, you know, game one was, it was definitely, you know, obviously game two Memphis takes over, they dominate, but Memphis needs someone other than Ja to be like, we talked about, I talked about a lot of the other series guys that just get a bucket. They, they don't have like Dylan Brooks being your second best bucket getter to me. Eh, I'm not crazy about that. Like he's a fine player, but he shouldn't be your like Jaron Jackson is solid. Like, like you mentioned, Julie, they got a lot of solid players, but this is the playoffs, right? This is the play. Like, they have just as much experience as Minnesota. Like, Minnesota has some guys who've been there. Pat Bev has been there. So, Anthony Edwards' ascension, Carl Anthony Towns' ascension, that's that's tough. That's tough. So, like, if Minnesota comes out, they win this game three. If I'm Memphis, I, I'm, you know, you know, I just wasn't a, I know a lot of people are like, oh, Memphis got this in five. And I was like, I don't know about that. Like, I, I like this Memphis team, but it's different when you get into playoffs and all that. They got they got to find someone else other than Jod. And even Jod, Jod gets on the floor way too much. He, he, he And it scares me because he's on the floor for, like, no reason. Like, you don't need to do all. Like, and I think that's why he's been hurt a lot this year. And the, that can hurt them going forward because he's on the floor a lot. He's got to still continue to get better shots and all because he's not a great perimeter player too so if he does not hit the shots you're gonna rely on Dylan Brooks and Desmond Bain has been kind of okay you know we need him to to, to step up a little bit more but this series is so tough to pick I got it's kind of just a back and forth it might be the most intriguing series other than Nets Boston uh, of these whole playoffs and I'm looking forward to game three 
All right. Last but not least, Pelicans, the Suns, series that shouldn't matter, but it does now because Devin Booker is going to be out for what looks like a good portion of the series for the Phoenix Suns. Pelicans are interesting because it's a team built on Brandon Ingram, CJ McCollum, and Jonas Valanciunas, who you could argue all of them are in the top 50 in the NBA and none of them are top 30 players in the NBA. They're in a weird place with that, but if you take away Devin Booker from the Suns, the Suns look surprisingly vulnerable now. And like I talked about the other series, they don't have a lot of guys who could create their own shots. So now you got to rely on CP3 to orchestrate everything. And he's another guy who's gotten hurt, right? And he tends to get hurt at the worst times. And like not saying he's going to happen, but like, let's say he goes down. They're in trouble. Like Mikel Bridges is someone who's a nice spot up shooter, you know, can create a little bit, but not the way you want your camp Cam, Cam Johnson can do some things. They have some guys, but Booker is, is that engine, you know, that, 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 that scoring force you need. And, you know, he might be an all NBA first team guy and losing him for two to three weeks. Like, like you mentioned, uh, Kyle, this series went from probably the one series, like, all right, this is over in four. Like, this is a sweep. Like, you give credit to what the Pelicans have done because they started off like two and 17 and they, they the diversity with the whole Zion stuff and all that. And they, you know, they want to be in the playoffs. Like, they beat some teams like to get in. This is a series. Like, we could see a 1 8 upset because Brandon Ingram might be the best scorer on the court, on the floor. And he, we've seen him take that level up. And we, that's a lot. We've seen a lot in this playoffs we're seeing guys taking that next step and he's one that i've seen you know he's always been like you're kind of under the radar because he played playing for the pelicans playing for new orleans but he's taking that next level and he's the best scorer on the team and he takes off it's going to be i know mikhail bridges is an all nba defender but brandon ingram six foot ten and can get and can score on all three levels so and and then you add cj mccullum so you got two guys who are the two best you know shot creators on the floor it's going to be tough for the Suns to overcome it. So, like, they're going to have to, to win this one. And I still think they'll win the series simply because they just have the pedigree. And even though Book's out, they still have it. But and now it's like, okay, now I'm going to have to watch it and, and be like, now you're glued to it because you're like, okay, oh, this is something now. This, this is one of those series where you're like, ah, whatever. Like, you know, now it's something. And that's the that's intriguing. And then that, that's going to be fun to see what happens in this game. You know, crowd's going to be wild. Kyle's going to be crazy. We'll just see how it happens. It's it's very, very intriguing game. Chris, thanks for coming on and talking some basketball with us. Final question. Who is going to be your NBA champion? And then I want you to give me some obligatory plugs, man. Uh, the NBA champ. Uh, well, the champion took a hit <laughs> with, with the, with the Booker injury. I had them before the season winning it all. Um, I felt like they're one of those teams that are going to, you know, live off that being up 2-0 and, and coming and losing that series. They, they, I think they uh, were going to recover, but oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know what? I hate to say it because I'm not, I hate everything Boston, but uh, Celtics, I'm a Jason Tatum guy. I do love to, he went to Duke. I'm a Duke fan. So I kind of like him, but I can't really like him too much because he plays for Boston. I guess how I'm going to roll with them. I'm going to roll with them. And especially if they, if they dominate, if they take advantage of the nets and all that, I, I think I'm going to roll with them. I think I'm going to roll with them. All right. I appreciate you for saying that, but if they lose and you jinx it, we're, we're throwing hands, man. We're throwing hands. <laughs> I mean, this series is like the worst thing for me because yeah. I don't Fair want enough. any of te- these teams to win. You know, obviously the Nets thing, you know, being in New York and then Boston's Boston. I don't like Boston, but putting my NBA hat on, taking the fan hat off. I like this ball, the defense. They got the both. They, they, they can, they have a, 
bunch of all NBA defenders. They got a bunch of guys who could score, you know, and then you take away one team, another title team away, you know, in the first round, you don't have to worry about the Nets going forward. I, I like, I like them. I, I think I like them. Not too much though. I don't want to like them too much. Fair enough. Off the ball. Where can you find it? How can you download? Yes. So uh, you can follow me uh, off the ball pod on, on Twitter. That's where I'm more active, most active. So you can follow me for all any updates and all Like I say, I'm getting into the draft. Obviously going to do some shows, with, you know, discussing all the playoffs and all that. Find me Apple, Spotify, all that good stuff. Podbean, YouTube, go follow our YouTube, our off the ball network, you know, uh, give us a sub, give us a like. Uh, we got a lot of good content coming. Check out vaultableownetwork.com. And, you know, like I said, thanks for having me on, guys. It was a lot of fun. I love talking ball. The Slowbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. The quarterback carousel seems to be spinning once again as we near the NFL draft. Kyler Murray may have quit baseball, but he seems set to play hardball with the Arizona Cardinals. Kyler scrubbed his Instagram last month as contract negotiations stalled. This was followed by a letter from his agent listing his various accomplishments. Now his agent is once again stirring the pot, indicating Murray will not play another snap without a new deal. It is reported that Murray is seeking a deal worth of $45 million a year, while the Cardinals have not presented a counteroffer. Kyle Ledbetter, what does this recent buzz suggest about Kyler's future in the desert? Well, this is a really interesting proposition that I think we're all not prepared for in this, uh, in the fact that there's a perfect confluence events. It's the cheap ass Arizona Cardinals. It's a quarterback on a rookie contract coming up on a second contract and some disagreement about how good people think Kyler Murray actually is. And so the interesting part about it is like Kyler Murray is in that camp where he's not Patrick Mahomes. He's not Josh Allen. He's not Lamar Jackson. He's not Aaron Rodgers. And yet he's still a quarterback that can change the course of your entire franchise. The Arizona Cardinals were terrible. And it's not exactly this, but they were terrible. They added Kyler Murray and now they're good enough to make the playoffs every single year. And it's really interesting because while the Cardinals may have had more talented players than Kyler Murray in their past, like Chandler Jones is probably better at what he did at his peak than Kyler is at what he does. They've never had a player more valuable than Kyler Murray in the last 15 to 20 years of their franchise. You can argue Larry Fitzgerald if you want. It's more just the position that Kyler Murray plays. At that position, the Arizona Cardinals have never had a quarterback that good. And so where they're balking at is basically there's like a, an eight to $10 million gap between where the Cardinals value Kyler Murray at and where Kyler Murray values Kyler Murray at. And without room to compromise right now, it's kind of just in a standoff. And what happens in a standoff is that both sides battle to control the court of public opinion. There's been a whole character smearing of Kyler Murray in Arizona, and Kyler Murray's agent has had the ransom note that my friend Walter Mitchell likes to call it. And while I don't agree with the nature of the ransom note, I like calling it a ransom note uh, to the Cardinals about what his contract details entail. And so there's there's been this public opinion battle, but nothing's really changed because neither side is willing to compromise at this point on where they view Kyler Murray. I'm sure if they came back tomorrow and said, hey, we will take exactly what Derek Carr got, $40 million a year, team friendly on the first two years of the deal, Cardinals would probably sign that deal, even though they haven't offered a deal to Kyler Murray yet. It's just that the agent came to the Cardinals negotiating a contract. The Cardinals didn't like the deal that was being offered. And so now we're just kind of in a state 
standoff. And it's interesting to see how it goes along because most players don't have the leverage in the NFL to win a standoff against management. There are only about 15 players in the NFL that are big enough to win standoffs against management. Like, for example, it took Devontae Adams two years, but Devontae Adams won his standoff against management with the Packers. Aaron Rodgers won his standoff with management against the Packers. Russell Wilson won his standoff with management against the Seahawks. Deshaun Watson, as gross as all of that was, was valuable enough to win a standoff against the Texans and eventually like negotiate with five different organizations for the right to pay him an exorbitant amount of money, even though he's accused of all these sexually predatory behaviors. And so there's like 15 of those players in the NFL that can pull that off that are literally bigger than their organizations. Like there are 15 players that are bigger than their organizations. And Kyler Murray's right on the edge of that line. He's right on the edge of that line. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because you can make an argument that Kyler Murray is going to win his standoff. You can make the argument the Cardinals are going to win the standoff. Both sides are equally plausible at this point. I just don't know. Some people feel convinced Kyler should just go pound sand and he'll fold and he'll show up to training camp. Other people are arguing Kyler's going to hold out into the entire season and the Cardinals will fold and give him a contract. I say could be both. And that's the really interesting part about all of this is it sucks that Kyler's being put in this position. He should not play another game until he gets a contract, by the way. that, that That's my stance, but I am incredibly pro-labor over the years in these situations. Kyler Murray shouldn't have to take a $150 million risk with his body if he's not going to be guaranteed a single dollar. But Not a risk. His career is going to be fine. Like Dak Prescott coming off of his major injury still got paid. At this point, the Alex Smith possibility, and hell, even Alex Smith managed play again in the NFL, is a dwindling prospect for NFL quarterbacks. I'm not saying there's zero risk, but I'm not saying it's as big of a risk as I think we blow it out to be every time a quarterback is up for a contract extension. And yet we just saw it with Baker Mayfield this year. That man just lost $80 million on his contract. And the thing is, but we Kyler Murray is with Baker Mayfield beforehand. This is true. Cause I was going to say Kyler Murray is better than Baker Mayfield. This is certainly true. And some, the example I bring up with this is because I've talked about this point before on the Red Rain podcast, which you can check out everywhere you get podcasts. What's interesting is that so Baker Mayfield was injured and lost $100 million and basically the rest of his NFL career, because the only starting jobs Baker is going to get from this point going forward are shitty starting quarterback jobs, or he'll go be a backup somewhere and inherit a job because someone gets hurt, like a really good quarterback gets hurt and he happens to be the backup on a good team. So Baker lost $100 million. Lamar Jackson, who's, by the way, Lamar Jackson's an interesting situation because he's negotiating his own contract and he's purposely waiting to sign his extension. But Lamar Jackson could, I mean, he injured his ankle last year, but Lamar Jackson could tear his ACL, PCL, and LCL tomorrow and still get a fully guaranteed contract at $50 million a year because someone will pay him that amount of money based on the MVP season he had two years ago and in 2020 with a roster totally depleted, single-handedly carrying Baltimore to the second round of the playoffs. So Lamar Jackson could get the money tomorrow, like you said. Baker Mayfield couldn't. Kyler Murray's somewhere in the middle of Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield. I just don't know exactly where Kyler Murray is. And everyone has different opinions of Kyler Murray. If you think Kyler Murray is a tier three quarterback, if he's in the same tier as Kirk Cousins and Derek Carr and the rotting corpse of Matt Ryan, if you think that's where Kyler Murray resides, 
Hell no, you're not paying him $45 million a year. If you think he's as good as Dak Prescott or as good as Justin Herbert, like I think that he is, because he's been top 10 in QBR each of his first three seasons, made two Pro Bowls in three years, one Rookie of the Year in 2019, and just makes wow plays that make me watch. Like he rolls to his left and fires like 50 yards down the field and hits receivers in like a half inch window. Like I've seen Kyler make wow plays and have the stats to back it up. He's just gotten hurt each of the last two seasons and in the smear campaign of Kyler Murray, that's what Cardinals fans seem to be holding against him. Well, that has to be baked into a contract negotiation. The fact that he has been hurt two of the last three seasons and the fact that anytime he has been hurt, it seems to negatively impact his stat line. He doesn't seem like Tom Brady who's playing through an MCL in injury and is still able to put up stats to help his team win games. So I have to factor that into the negotiation. And yes, it could get ugly bringing up a guy's injury history, but that's what we're doing. That's what we're talking about. Every bit of information that we have, your injury history, your stat line, your character is all going to be factored into the negotiation and including precedent. And speaking of precedent, when it comes to Kyler Murray, there has been five quarterbacks that have been paid after year three. And one was a no-brainer in Patrick Mahomes. The other was another no-brainer in Josh Allen. Deshaun Watson mixed, but if you were, were just going on on the field play, you would absolutely pay Deshaun Watson. And then we get into Carson Wentz, which is a bit of a gray area. Carson Wentz got that deal because, well, Carson Wentz had a basically MVP season. And most people are in agreement that he would have been MVP had he not gotten hurt in that game. Did we know what was going to transpire after that? No. And now that's putting up red flags for someone like Kyler, who's coming to the negotiating table in the same way. Jared Goff also gets factored into this, but at least you would say Jared Goff, obviously more accomplished in his short tenure with Sean McVay. Now we're questioning what Jared Goff's like future in the NFL is in a similar way we're talking about Baker Mayfield, but Jared Goff, at least after that had not as abysmal of playoff performances as Kyler Murray had. Like you can factor in how bad that game was against the Rams. It, it's a red mm. flag. It's a red mm. flag when we talk about this negotiating that he performed. Do, do I need to get pull up the numbers just to give you some context? Oh, no, I know it was bad. I also know that he had Max Garcia trying to block Aaron yes, Donald in and that game. And battle through offensive line injuries and wide receiver injuries every single year. And they don't look like the 33rd best quarterback in the league when they do it. They don't look like oh, Blake yeah. Bortles on his bad days or Carson Wentz when he's throwing with his left hand. He was 19 for 34, 137 passing yards, two picks. And one of those picks was one of the worst picks you'll see in a playoff game. That's all part of the Kyler Murray experience. And the fact that I've had Cardinals fans who have said, oh, if we had DeAndre Hopkins, that's a game trick. No. No, just watch the game. DeAndre Hopkins won't make that much of a difference. DeAndre Hopkins oh, it won't was the make, difference yeah. between losing the game like they did against the Rams and winning that game against the Rams. No, I think this goes back to college for Kyler. This is not a new accusations that are getting thrown around about his character when we talk about this smear campaign against Kyler Murray. We're hearing the same things thrown out, self-centered, immature, finger-pointing, as described by Chris Mortensen. You kind of wonder what those sources are, but there's been questions about how teammates vibe around him him. And that's all part of the things when I'm factoring and I want to pay a franchise quarterback. I also don't want you to be the biggest problem in the locker room. Aaron oh. Rodgers has earned that respect to be that problem in the locker room because Aaron Rodgers is more accomplished. Russell Wilson can cause all the stink he wants because Russell Wilson had already won a Super Bowl. Kyler Murray, you're coming to me after that playoff performance and saying, pay me. Yes, 100%. And that's just the way that the structure's set up in the NFL. But if you hold out, then you're going against that structure in the NFL. But that's not just the structure in the NFL. That's also the structure negotiated by your players association as well. Mm hmm.
That is correct. The reason it's a smear campaign is not that those things aren't true. It's that we weren't hearing those things until the contract negotiations went sour. This wasn't part of the national discourse until the contract negotiations went sour. But that's also because Kyler made the first move at making it public. When we started hearing these things come out, they were after we started seeing him scrub his Instagram account yes. and a number of other and, things. And that is because Eric Burkhart went to the card, his agent, Eric Burkhart is Kyler Murray's agent. They went to the Cardinals asking for a contract extension. The Cardinals didn't come to him and negotiate a contract extension. And that's why Kyler Murray made the first move in trying to win the court of public opinion, which has kind of backfired in a way because now the smear campaign of Kyler Murray begins. Like when you when you take things public first, which is what Kyler Murray did the week of the Super Bowl, he tried to control the narrative and he scrubbed his Instagram and everyone's talking about, oh, look how bad the Cardinals are to not give Kyler an extension. And then the Cardinals retaliated with the smear campaign. And now the public opinion has shifted on Kyler Murray dramatically in the time since where it's like, well, maybe Kyler's not the quarterback that we think he is, which all of that was just objectively speaking before, like that's the nature. It's basically just a contract stalemate. And it's been a contract stalemate for three months. It'll be a contract stalemate for six more months, unless they come to a compromise on a new deal, which how hard is it to judge Kyler Murray's value when we kind of see what the quarterback market is at this point? If Carr's getting 40 million, if Stafford got 40.5, Five million. He's probably going to get forty-five million on a contract. And that's fair. I'm not saying that Kyler Murray is not probably a forty million dollar quarterback in the long run, based around his peers. But we we've had this philosophy of whoever's up for the contract next has to be the highest paid guy, or has to be the highest paid guy by an extra dollar. I am more of the philosophy. I'm tired of kind of like paying mediocre, like paying elite for mediocre. And I don't see Kyler as one of the elite guys. I don't see him as Patrick Holmes. I don't see him as Josh Allen. I don't see him at, as one of those guys yet. Will he develop in that? Maybe. The, I, thing that's, the, oh. the fact that I have enough question marks, the fact that I have enough red flags about it, and the fact that I'm comfortable saying here today, I don't see Kyler Murray as a Super Bowl winning quarterback. I don't see it happening. And I don't want to pay a guy that I don't think I can win a Super Bowl with So this is an interesting question about expectations, which I will get to that in a second. The part that's interesting about that is we know Kyler Murray's not elite. We know Kyler Murray's not mediocre. This is a really interesting group that is the the second tier that we're talking about, which in my quarterback rankings, tier one is Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson. Tier two, as of right now, is... And this changes because like Matt Ryan was in tier two, then he was in tier three, now he's in tier four. But like right now it's Dak Prescott, Kyler Murray, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, and Russell Wilson kind of hanging on by the edge of tier two. Tier two and a half is Matthew Stafford. And then tier three is Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, et cetera, down the line. What's interesting is we know he's not elite and we know he's not mediocre. So what do you do in the in-between? What do you do if you have someone who's in the in-between? Because you could go both ways on this. And if Here's I'm- what we could do. We could wait until his fourth year plays out. We have a fifth year option. And if it really gets to the point that we're still figuring this out after the fifth year option, guess what? There's a thing called a franchise tag. Oh, if you're management, that's correct. But if you look at it from the Kyler Murray standpoint, I'm not playing another game until I get at least 150 million So you're going to sacrifice guaranteed. this 5 million this year, not with any guarantees that that's going to play out well for you in the long run, because it's kind of similar to the Le'Veon Bell deal. Yeah. Except Bell would rather have that 15 million back from that year. He sat on the franchise tag and I guarantee he would have still got paid what he got paid. Except Le'Veon Bell wasn't good enough to do that. 
And Debo Samuel, who's obviously holding out right now at the 49ers, he's not good enough to do that. uh, Devontae Adams, again, like Devontae Adams was good enough to do it. It took two full seasons and the the white and Christian Kirk getting 22 million a year. It took two full seasons for uh, Devontae Adams to get the contract and the team he wanted to play for, but he eventually had the power to do so. Kyler Murray, again, this is the debate. Does he have the power to do so? And my answer is, I don't know. Now, for me to ad-lib in here, because that was all the objective stuff, for me to ad-lib this part is, yes, you might not be able to win a Super Bowl with Kyler Murray. And what? If you're Arizona, what is the alternative? The alternative is you trade Kyler Murray and you're restarting all over again. Like, yeah, Kyler Murray could get hurt. Yeah, Kyler Murray could end up stinking. Yeah, Kyler Murray could derail your franchise. The alternative is to trade him and do it to yourselves anyways. And like, yeah, you get a bunch of draft picks for it. Did those draft picks help the Dolphins? Did those draft picks help the Raiders? Have those draft picks helped the Giants or Jets or Jaguars? Which I'm not saying the Cardinals are that poorly run of a franchise, but they're like, they're in the tier right above the really poorly run franchises. And don't you want to at least find out if this is what you have to do, if you're being checkmated and this is what you have to do, you have to give him a contract before he plays another game for your team. Don't you want to at least find out if he's going to be a really good quarterback and or find out after year four. And if he doesn't want to play this year, then that's on him. If you're the Cardinals, absolutely. You can over the rights that then that's fine. You'll play your year four next year then. Oh, but remember the Le'Veon Bell thing, you get a year closer to free agency in that way. But the, the, the thing is, Kyler can't pull that off. If they're going to if they're going to get to that point, Kyler's going to retire from football. And that's going to be his way out of that as if at a certain point he's going to keep playing the leverage until either he folds or the Cardinals fold. And we'll see what ends up happening again. This is the thing that I said is like if Aaron Rodgers wanted to pull that shit, he could do it. Tom Brady was about to pull that shit. Tom Brady retired, had a deal in place to go be the general manager president of the Miami Dolphins. And eventually the Bucks would trade his rights to Miami so he could go be quarterback to them. Like Tom Brady was about to pull that off. Russell Wilson just pulled it off. It also helped that the Seahawks didn't really want to give him a contract anyways, but Russell Wilson pulled it off. Aaron Rodgers pulled it off. Deshaun Watson, as gross as it was, pulled it off. Can Kyler Murray do it? My answer is, I don't know. I hope he can, but that's just because I'm pro-labor. I hope he can pull it off. And the, the other part of the equation is someone will pay Kyler Murray 45 to 50 million a year. There will be teams lined up right now to pay Kyler Murray 45 to 50 million a year. And that's the leverage he has against the Cardinals is if you won't do it, someone else 100% will. In fact, I could name 15 teams right now that would pay Kyler Murray. Five of them just tried to trade for Deshaun Watson in a really gross way. And so that's the interesting part where I'm like, do you have a choice if you're the Cardinals? Who's going to fold first? The answer is, I don't know. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Joining us today, a repeat guest, third time's the charm. We are bringing back Blake Jude of Stripe, Hype, Cincy, and Phil to court. Blake has a passion for the draft like a young Mel Kuyper without the crazy hair. Blake, are you on player evaluation 800 or 900 today? 
Oh my gosh, I am all over this draft last couple of days. It's been a very, very busy week for me uh, getting ready for one, going to Vegas here in a week and also two, being able to evaluate all these players. It's been a very, very fun draft process. It took me a little bit, a little bit to get into it. I think after a while, I was so focused on the Super Bowl, of course, the Cincinnati Bengals and everything. But once all that ended and we got back into the draft season, I've been hard at it and uh, been trying to scout a lot of guys. I know I had a lot last year. I want to say 270, 260 guys, a little bit behind right now I think I'm at like 220 230 but still I'm pretty proud of myself I've got a lot of guys done so far I'm trying to evaluate and watch film on a, on a lot of different guys right now and it's been a lot of fun a great enjoyment to go ahead and do it I guess it's a blessing and a curse that the Bengals made it so far in the last postseason because usually you're probably doing some draft evaluations a little bit early but honestly we'll say this about this draft it kind of like snuck up on me and I, I just think that there's not a lot of popularity or not a lot of buzz heading in this draft and I think that has a lot to do with the quarterback position we're hearing that there's not a lot of great prospects coming out that people are getting really excited about. We talked about the top guys like Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett. Do you think that's overblown or do you think that's legitimate? No, I think there's definitely a legitimacy to that. I really think that you look at um, the quarterback prospects right now. I, I wouldn't say Malik Willis. You take him into last year's class. I don't think he's a top three quarterback in last year's class. So that, that, that says a lot considering that he's probably going to be the first one off the board this year. So I do think there is a, a good point to be made that maybe it's not a lot of top end talent here in this draft class, uh, especially at quarterback. But I do think you look at the middle and late parts, especially of the first round, I think there's going to be a lot of value there. I think there's a lot of really, really solid prospects. I have 30 guys graded in the first round this year, which is a pretty good bit compared to what it mostly is. I think last year was like 28 or 29. There are a lot of first round picks I have graded, but I do think there's quite a bit of uh, guys that are not exactly top 10 talents, but maybe top 15, 20, 25. There's a lot of guys that are later on, I think are, are better off. So last year, I'm going to throw some props at you real quick. You nailed most of the blue chip prospects. You went out on a limb and said Micah Parsons was a blue chip prospect and Rashawn Slater, and both of them made all pro teams as rookies. So how many blue chip prospects do you see in this year's class and who are they? Yeah, there are three guys that I have separate from, I think, everyone else. Actually, I'd say four. Four guys that have separated from the rest of the pack this year that I think are going to, like, separate themselves. Kayvon Thibodeau is actually my number one prospect in this year's class. It's not very a popular opinion. I know a lot of people like Aiden Hutchinson. Thibodeau is my guy. I really, really like his size and length. I think he's a great pass rusher. has all the tools to be a borderline elite player at the next level. Now, he's not going to be your Chase Young, your Nick Bosa, your Miles Garrett edge rusher he really shouldn't be the number one overall player in this class but I do think he's a very very good player and he should be a top five pick in most classes in my eyes I think he's that good so I'm definitely a huge fan of Thibodeau Kyle Hamilton I think I talked to you about this in your podcast actually uh, is the best safety prospect I've ever scouted I think there's a lot of people who aren't talking about Kyle Hamilton enough uh, he's not a second graded player in this class in terms of talent uh, I really, really think that he's got all the tools necessary to be an elite safety, and especially in a league that really doesn't have a lot of elite safeties right now. He's going to separate himself, as, in my opinion, as one of the better safeties in the league almost year one. I think he's that good. Uh, so I think he's going to be a steal for whoever is able to take him. Aiden Hutchinson is my third prospect. Uh, in this class, I really, really like Hutchinson's game. Uh, I do think that he's more of a high floor guy than Kayvon Thibodeau, but maybe a little bit of a lower ceiling, which is why I do prefer Thibodeau overall. You're going to get a guy immediately who's going to come in and get, I think, nine, ten sacks minimum uh, per season. I think he's he's that good. Um, and, and I really think the fourth guy, there are two guys I really like, Derek Stingley and Ike McQuanu, uh, who I think are both really arguable there. They're kind of both teetering in that area. Uh, I'll include Stingley because I really think what I saw from Stingley's freshman year, he can definitely separate himself as a potential blue chip prospect. I really like his game as well. And, and 
Kwanu is right there, borderline. I think he's going to be top five pick in this year's draft. Uh, I really like him at guard. If we're, if we're talking about offensive guard, he's definitely a blue chip in my opinion. But you might be playing tackle next level. That's a little bit iffy for me. Uh, so I do think there's an argument to be made for, for both Aquano and Stingley. But I do think those four or five guys are going to be the ones we're going to talk about being, probably being the best in the class. Well, you mentioned Thibodeau. And going into last college football season, I think a lot of people had Thibodeau at the top of their draft board. He was going in a lot of the way too early mocks. But then Hutchinson came on. And now in recent mocks, I'm starting to see the name Trayvon Walker start to appear more. So a couple guys have jumped ahead of Thibodeau since the early evaluations. What exactly has changed between, let's say, last August and now that has caused Thibodeau to drop? And do you think that that's fair based on other people's evaluations? That's a great question because I've been trying to figure out the same thing for a long time. I don't know why people are all of a sudden dropping down on Thibodeau. I will say, I definitely think Hutchinson did himself a lot of favors returning to Michigan last season and performing. I mean, he was a Heisman candidate almost, basically an edge rusher. So he definitely helped out his case. So I can see the argument in saying Hutchinson maybe just became better than Thibodeau. I do know Thibodeau has been struggling with injuries. I know that can be a concern. People have been saying that his effort isn't really there. Or he doesn't have a dog in him or whatever they're trying to say. I don't, I don't really get that. I don't, I don't think that has any backing to it, but I've seen that argument be made. As for Walker, I really think what happened with Walker is we saw his combine, and Trevor Walker is an insane athletic beast. He can be playing on edge and into your defensive line. He can really play anywhere on the defensive line and already has a, some very, very good tape when it comes to run stopping. He's a bit of a raw pass rusher kind of, similar to how I guess Thibodeau has been in the past. So you can see why maybe they put him above Thibodeau. But I do think you, you look at Thibodeau's tools. I really think that he's better set to being a high level edge rusher next level. While I do think Trevon Walker is going to be a guy that's probably going to be more of a run stopping uh, interior defensive lineman, maybe, maybe a five tech could play on the outside if need be, but I do firmly prefer uh, Kayvon Thibodeau over Trayvon Walker. Walker's my edge four in this class. I was like Jermaine Johnson from Florida State a lot. But I do just understand why people do prefer Walker and Hutchinson. But I also think there's not really much backing to it. I don't really think there's anything wrong with Thibodeau in terms of being a prospect. Uh, I think a lot of people are trying to nitpick him right now. Um, but I do think Hutchinson and Walker are very good prospects as well. So building off of the idea of Trayvon Walker, uh, I have seen multiple mock drafts that have five players on the Georgia defense going in the first round, which would be some kind of a record for me. I remember three guys from that Clemson championship team went in the first round a few years ago and they had like a third rounder also. But how many of those Georgia guys can realistically expect to go in the first round? It, it's certainly possible that there's five guys going. Uh, Jordan Davis, Trayvon Walker, I could that are absolute locks. They're going to be first round picks. There's absolutely no question. Uh, probably even top 10 picks. I can see Jordan Davis sneaking into the top 10. We know Trayvon Walker is getting a lot of top three hype right now. So those guys are for sure. Uh, Nicobe Dean's my favorite linebacker in this draft. I love Nicobe Dean. I think he's an absolute beast. A little bit undersized for a linebacker, but I think when it comes to being able to blitz, um, is very, very good with his instincts, can tackle very, very, very well. Uh, has great range for a linebacker. He has all the tools necessary to be an elite linebacker next level, despite his size. So I definitely think Nicobe Dean's another guy that can probably end up in the round one uh, of the draft. And we've also been seeing a lot of recently of Quay Walker, the linebacker from Georgia, who wasn't really the, the top guy in the linebacker core, of course, um, Nicobe Dean, who was playing out of his mind. Um, but he had a very, very solid season as well. And has really rose up the ranks, possibly one of the top linebackers in this class as well. Um, with his, you know, insane athleticism, because he's very, very well in the pro day and combine. I do think that he's going to have a great argument to be going in the first round as well. Uh, and, and then you look at guys like 
I know Channing Tindall, the other linebacker, has been getting a lot of hype. Um, you look at guys like, oh, Lewis Sign, uh, the safety, who's also getting a lot of hype right now in the round one as well. Uh, I have him as a round two prospect. I think he probably, that's probably where he ends up. But I have been seeing a lot of mock drafts, as you said, uh, people taking Lewis Sign here at like 31, 30 uh, to the Chiefs. And that's been a very popular uh, pick lately. So maybe there's a chance that he's the number one safety or number two safety off the board behind Hamilton. I can see that being a possibility. Don't really think that happens. I'm probably going to say four. I think four is a, a good bet for Georgia when it comes to those players coming off the board. But all of them are going to be on defense. They have an insane uh, stack defense, uh, de- defense right now, and they're all going to be coming off the board uh, pretty soon. I'm going to appeal to your Cincinnati bias, and we're going to talk about that second tier of quarterbacks. I'm starting here. Desmond Ritter's name get a little bit more buzz as we draw closer to the draft. Matt Corral, Sam Howell, Carson Strong. These are guys that are in that second class behind Pickett and Willis. Out of that grouping of guys, who do you think will be the most pro-ready? Who do you think is the most poised to actually come in? And if they have to take snaps in 2022, provide a boost to their team? I love Ritter's raw abilities, but I do struggle to believe that he can be a good quarterback year one, maybe even year two. I think he's a guy that needs a lot of development. Um, actually, my top graded quarterback in this class and the guy that I think could be an absolute steal for someone that's able to get him, maybe in that tier two area, is Matt Corral. Uh, from Ole Miss, who I am a huge fan of. I really like Matt Corral's game. You you saw how much he improved based off last season in college football. Looks really, really good all around. I think he's got great athleticism for a quarterback. Has one of the strongest arms in the class as well. Um, can, can show to be a little inaccurate at times, but I do think his accuracy is pretty good as well. You look at you look at his game overall. I mean, you, you can really compare him to guys like Josh Allen in terms of prospect. I know he's not Josh Allen level. I definitely prefer Josh Allen in the draft a couple years ago whenever he was in the draft. But I do think Matt Corral has a lot of great game to him, and I think that he could be a good starter next level. I do think Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett have been really the consensus top two guys. Like contenders those two being tier one. Um, but I really think in those in that tier two area, I would definitely take Matt Corral uh, as my top guy. And, and I also want to give a quick audible mention to Sam Howell, the quarterback from North Carolina, who I also like a lot. He's gotten a lot of uh, hate for, I guess, being too similar to Baker Mayfield in terms of a prospect, which I can see that. I can see the Baker Mayfield comparisons, but I definitely think he's more athletic than Baker Mayfield. He's shown to be healthier uh, overall. And you see him make some insane throws in, for North Carolina. His tape last year, the year before, whenever he had Daz Newsom and guys like that, I mean, it was really impressive to see how he performed. He has really gotten a lot of different receivers around him and Bob, Yummy Brown as well. Uh, you, you watch him make those plays. I mean, it was insane to see how tight those some of those throws were. A very athletic quarterback. I think he can be a good game manager. I'll also say I can definitely see a scenario where Sam Howell goes to a team like the New Orleans Saints. I can see him having a chance of starting in year one. How many of the wide receivers do you think will get drafted in the first round? And how do you rank the the three at the top, which at, at this point seem to be Jamison Williams, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson. And most people have Drake London as number four. I know you've kind of gone back and forth there, but how do you rank the wide receivers? Yeah, it's a great question. There's five guys I think deserve to be round one prospects. Actually, I'll say six. I think there's six guys I think deserve to be round one prospects right now. Uh, my number one overall receiver in this class since day one has been Chris Olave. Olave, another very unpopular opinion. I know I've had a couple of these lately, but I'm, I'm a huge Chris Olave fan. You're talking about being an elite route runner. This guy is one of the best route runners I've ever seen on film. A very, very good deep threat. I love the idea of him going to the New Orleans Saints to match up with Michael Thomas. I think he can be an elite level wide receiver there. Um, he has, he's graded over a 90 for me, which is a mid-round, mid-first mid round pick right now. So I do think there's a good argument to be made that he can go top 16 and I wouldn't hate the pick at all. 
Um, Garrett Wilson's my number two. I know a lot of people have him as a number one right now. He's getting a lot of hype with the Atlanta Falcons at pick number eight right now. I think that can be a very solid pick as well. You can both Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. They, they both had insane seasons at Ohio State playing alongside each other, which is very tough for both of them to be able to have, be that good next to each other, of course. So I really think Garrett Wilson, he's, he's bigger than Olave. He's got better contested catch. Uh, I, think can, he, he, I think you can even argue in terms of speed and athleticism, you might even be more athletic than Chris Olave as well, which is why I think a lot of people prefer Garrett Wilson. But I do think that uh, Olave has a better route running. He's more of a safer pick right now with his ability to um, separate, I think, compared to Garrett Wilson. I do like that a lot um, in, in Olave compared to Wilson. And Jameson Williams is my third guy. I don't have my list in front of me right now. i got to think about this in my head. It's changed back and forth. Jameson Williams, Drake London, and Traylon Burks have been like point four points apart this entire process. They are all really close there in terms of talent right now. I, I believe I have Jamison Williams three, Drake London four, Traylon Burks five uh, in that order right now. And, and I think Jamison Williams, you saw what he did in Alabama. He had an insane season this year, really came out of nowhere, I think. Everyone expected Medkey to take a big step. Ended up being J-Mo, uh, who ended up doing that. I was really impressed with his ability to separate, like kind of like how Chris Olave is. And I think that he's he's a very versatile receiver. He can play really anywhere on the field and be able to create separation, which I think is very, very valuable to different teams. Uh, and then look at guys like Drake London, a bigger body, a guy that's really good at contested catch. Could be a true X receiver next level. I do think there's going to be a lot of teams in the market for a guy like that. And Traylon Burks is a guy that I think is very, very good with the after the catch, yards after the catch. You can get him the ball wherever, and he's going to be able to make plays. Another big body guy, um, but he's very, very fast, very talented. I think he's going to be able to uh, get the ball and be able to make plays, break tackles, get down the field, of course. And the last guy I'll, I'll, I'll put as an honorable mention is Jahan Dotson, who I do have a first-round grade on as well. I love him going to the Chiefs. If you want to take, if you want to get a Tyree Kill replacement, that's your guy, Jahan Dotson. He's going to be very, very fast. I think he's probably going to be a slot receiver next level, at least in my eyes, but I do think Jahan Dodds has a lot of great tools to be able to create separation to get the ball in open space for a guy like Patrick Mahomes who can who loves those guys right so I'll say I think you end up seeing five go I'll, I'm going to go ahead and say I think six deserve to go right now Blake what do you think is going to be the biggest surprise in round one is a running back going to go is there going to be three quarterbacks in the top 15 is someone going to take a clue and feral type at four what do you see happening on draft day that's, a, that's another great question. I, I think there's a great case to be made that we end up seeing three quarterbacks go in the top 15. I think it's, I, think, I, I like how you said that. I do think it's a certain possibility. I've heard, I know, I'm almost certain that Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett will go in the top 15. You're looking at a guy like Desmond Ritter, maybe, or maybe even a Matt Corral going as well. I mean, in the top 20, I think it's probably a safer bet. But top 15 is certainly possible as well. We've heard rumors the Saints are going to move up for a quarterback. We've heard rumors that the Steelers want to move up for a quarterback. We know the Seahawks are in the market for a quarterback right now. There's going to be a team that's going to go out there and take a guy that we're not expecting. So I'm going to expect a, 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 maybe a second-round talent quarterback going first round. I can definitely see that being a big surprise and a good possibility. And also, another one that you kind of mentioned, Brees Hall, the running back from Iowa State, has gotten a lot of hype with the Buffalo Bills. Would not shock me one bit if the Buffalo Bills go back in the first round and get another running back to help kind of maybe secure that offense uh, in terms of getting a better run game on the field right now. So I can see both those things happening, certainly. Would not shock me one bit. In terms of prospects, there's a guy that I am a huge fan of that no one's talking about right now, Tariq Woolen from UTSA. This is a guy that I think could go into the first round. I think he's got the talent to. He's got he's running a four two six forty, which is insane. Uh, six foot four at cornerback um, is a former wide receiver turned cornerback, so we know that he has the ability to have great ball skills. I think this is a guy that if the right team's able to pick him up. He is the highest ceiling out of any corner in this draft. I think there's an underrated chance that he could probably even go in the first round. It would not shock me one bit. So if you had to 
pick for your beloved Cincinnati Bengals, would you take all offensive linemen with your seven picks in this year's draft? Maybe one or two. Uh, we'll see. But after what Cincinnati did in the free agency period, I, I really think this is going to be a defensive pick in their first round, at least. Uh, I'm really looking at guys like Andrew Booth Jr. from Clemson, Kyer Elam from Florida, uh, maybe even an edge rusher like George Karlaftis from Purdue or Boye Mafe from Minnesota. Uh, those guys, I think, going to be in, in the Bengals kind of range there at 31 right now, at least in my eyes. Um, so I do think it's probably going to be more of a defensive heavy draft for the Cincinnati Bengals. But offensive line wise, I'm not complaining. You give me an offensive lineman, I'm, I'm happy because they need everything they can get right now. Now, you need to protect Joe Burrow. It needs to happen, so I wouldn't complain. <laughs> Definitely would be a solid draft strategy. Anything to protect Joe Burrow surround Joe Burrow, but, you know, building off last year, I know it's certainly exciting times for your fanhood, Blake. Uh, go ahead and drop all the obligatory plugs for us before you head on out. Follow me on my Instagram, of course, at Cincy. It's a Bengals page. It's where I mainly do all my Bengals stuff. So if you're Bengals fan, go follow me, of course, there. Um, my Twitter, BlakeJude714, is where I do more or less just all-around stuff. You see a lot of NFL draft, a lot of NFL news, um, even Bengals stuff as well there as well. So go follow me on Twitter at BlakeJude714 if you want updates on NFL draft things. I will be dropping my uh, prospect grades here in the next couple coming days on both my Twitter and my Instagram. So if you want to go see those, I highly suggest you follow that as well. Uh, and of course, go follow my actually other podcast. Now I have a Bengals podcast that's out, Stripe Hype All Day Podcast. I've been reviewing a lot of prospects on that with my buddy, uh, William James. So go follow me on there. Uh, and thank you guys so much for having me on. It's been a blast. Appreciate it. Best two words in broadcasting, more Slump Buster. From Juju Talk Sports, from Kyle Ledbetter, stay safe, happy, and healthy. We will see you next time.